start at five. I mean, if if um, some folks said, hey, you know, uh, maybe hey, my kids go to bed early or, or something, is we're willing to make it flexible if if that's helpful. We do live in Payson. Uh, we live on the north side of town, on the north side of the airport there, so it wouldn't be too too far of a commute, hopefully, for some of you who live here in Pine or maybe in Strawberry. But we want to invite everybody to come. Um, and my number is in here, but yet my cell number uh, and I have their address. So we'd love to see you guys next week at 6 p.m. And um, you don't need to bring anything. We'll have a little bit of snacks and it'll just be a time of fellowship. We'll maybe sing a hymn together, pray together, um, and uh, get to share one another's stories. And so uh, we just would love to see this be a, just a gospel-centered community of, of love with one another. So, um, yes, we're all invited. Hope to see you there. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think if I'm correct, Dave and Julia, this will be a great opportunity for building community and just enjoying hanging around one another and uh, centered around Christ and his people. So I would encourage and invite everybody to, uh, to be there if you can. So with that, 6 p.m., and um, we'll we'll do that. And if we need to adjust the time, we can we can adjust the time. So as, as things go along. So I thank you guys for opening up your home and your hearts to uh, to the body of Christ. So, anyway, so well, we're going to continue for now. We'll continue in our study in the book book of Galatians. So you'll want to turn to Galatians chapter five, and we'll be. Addressing a rather large section of text today, but I hope we can get through it with. Uh, we can get through it and do a a good job with it. So, if you would, I'm going to go ahead and I will I will read our text. And before we do, would you join me as we uh, pray and ask God to illumine His Word to us? Father, we come before you and and we desire to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, every aspect of our lives, Lord God, we come before you. We confess, Lord God, that we have not done that. We confess, certainly, Lord God, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. So we ask, Lord, that as we approach your word and prepare to look into what you would have to say. We do ask, Lord God, that you would cleanse our hearts and our lives and our minds, Lord God. As the song, the hymnist, hymn, wrote, Lord, hymn writer wrote, Lord God, that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise. So we ask, Lord God, that you would do so this morning. Enable us, Lord God, to understand what you have written for us It is a revelation of you, and when we look into your word, Lord God, we find you. I pray this day, Lord God, that as we look into your word and we feed upon it and feast upon it, Lord God, that we will discover Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we will see him raised from the dead, 
seated at the right hand of majesty on high and imparting his life to those who will call upon his name. And so we pray, Father God, that you would impart life to us by the reading and the hearing of your word. Give me right words to speak, Lord God. I pray that I would not speak that which is not there, that I need not embellish what you have written, Lord God, that I not add to or subtract from your holy sufficient word. I need add nothing, nor do I need to take, be embarrassed to take anything away. It is your word. And I pray, Father God, that you would speak to our hearts and help us to learn. So have mercy upon us, Lord God. We stand recognizing that you are Lord, that you have forgiven us of our sins, that you have openly given us your spirit, and that we can understand and do what you have commanded. So we give you praise and we give you thanks. For Christ's sake, amen. So hear the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things as you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Well, as we continue our study here in the book of Galatians, we're actually getting kind of near the end. A few more weeks and uh, then... We'll get ready for Christmas. I'll do a little Advent series, and then probably sometime in January we'll begin the book of Daniel. So everybody asks, well, what are we going to do after Galatians? So we're going to do Daniel. Um, So anyways, you can start getting ready for that. But anyways, back to Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Um, Where where we were last week, it's important because we, our text today is part of a, a much bigger bigger issue. And, and one of the commands that came to us last week was this idea of, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I don't know about you, but that's pretty big. And, and we defined love as certainly not just a feeling or it's not an emotion, but love being that which seeks out the highest good of another. So if I am to love my neighbor as myself, my, the idea is that I'm going to seek out their highest good. That's why I don't steal from them because that's not their highest good. That's why I don't murder them or any of those things, is that uh, to seek out their highest good. And this is exactly what God did for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Our highest need, our highest good was his son. And so he loved us so much that he gave um, to meet our, our, our highest good. So we were told to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And as I said, I, I, I think that's a pretty tall order. I don't know about you, but I rarely, if ever, wake up in the morning saying, boy, I wonder how I can seek out my neighbor's highest good. I know I'm probably not quite as spiritual as some, as, as some of you. But loving my neighbor in that way is something that is a huge challenge. Sometimes I wake up and I think, well, I'm going to seek to seek my wife's highest good. That's possible. But how do I do this? How do I actually love my neighbor as myself? How do I seek the good of others with the same diligence that I seek my own good? That's a tall order. Well, by way of preview then, what we're going to see is Paul is going to introduce us to how we actually live that out. How do we live out that nearly impossible command? Because it's something that is a challenge for us to do. So in our text today, we are going to learn how we actually do the impossible. And so we come to verse 16, and we touched on verse 16 last week, but it is such a, an important, it's kind of the hinge, it's, it, perhaps it's the, the thesis of chapter 5, and that is, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so Paul begins this, this theme of spirit versus flesh. And, he, and verse 16 gives us both a command and a promise. Paul actually says, but I say, in other words, listen to me. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Listen to what I have to say. I want you to walk by the Spirit, and if you do so, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There is a command. Walk by the Spirit. And that is an imperative. Walk by the Spirit. I command you. This is not a a suggestion or a good idea or a nice thought. This is a command. Walk by the Spirit. And then there is a promise. And the promise is, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And we talked last week, and I'll just remind you, I won't go into all of the gory details, of how strong of a statement this is. In other words, walk by the Spirit, and you will not, absolutely you will not, carry out the desires of the flesh. So walk in the Spirit. We described... Last week, and I'll remind us again, this idea of what it means, what Paul means when he says not carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh is not this material part of us, this uh, um, my skin or my body. We're certainly not limited to that. Um, The flesh is that part of us that naturally rebels against God. It is the New International Version uh, interprets that word flesh and interprets it well by calling it our sinful nature. It is that part of us that rebels against God. It is that part of us that shakes our fist at God and says, no, I will not do what you tell me to do. No, I will not follow your will. No, I will not follow your commands. No, I will follow my own ways. I will do my own thing. And I am perfectly content and happy to do it. That's our flesh. Anybody ever deal with the flesh? All right? It's that part of you that says, I'm going to do and go my own way and not follow in the Lord's way. 
Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill that part of your nature. It is our sinful nature. Walk in the Spirit. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I'm going to deal with that a little bit later. The grand finale, right? But this statement here that if you walk in the Spirit, the command is to walk in the Spirit, so it is by living the Spirit-empowered life that we will be able to fulfill the seemingly impossible commands of God, such as love your neighbor as yourself. And so as Paul talks about living out this life of the Spirit, he uses a variety of verbs, and they're all fairly um, somewhat related to one another, but the Spirit-controlled life Paul describes as walking or being led or living or keeping in step. And they all have this idea of going where the Spirit is going, listening to the voice of the Spirit, following the leading or the guidance of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will lead you. The Holy Spirit will guide you. The Holy Spirit will will show the way and you are to walk, you are to um, live in that realm of the Holy Spirit. So in other words then, to be con- by summary then, to be controlled uh, by the Spirit, if you are controlled by the Spirit, you will not be controlled by your flesh. Now, verse 17 basically is... is ex- tells us explicitly what is implied in verse 16. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. The bottom line is this, folks. The Christian life is one of conflict. Conflict is a reality in the life of the believer. You cannot get around it. The flesh, that is, what we are by natural birth, and the spirit, that is, what we are by new birth, are in conflict with one another and we shouldn't be surprised. Are you any surprised that the old man, the sinful man, is in conflict with the new man that is, try, that is doing or that is in obedience to the commands of God? In other words, your flesh is anti-God and pro-self and the spirit is pro-God and anti-self. Is it any wonder that these two things are in conflict with one another? We shouldn't be surprised. I have people who will come to me and say, you know, John, I'm, I, I'm really concerned. You know, my, I just have all of these, these desires and all of these thoughts and all of these temptations to go my own way, to do these things that I know God has not called me to do, to think thoughts that are just, I know, are ungodly. And to have desires that I know do not align themselves with the things of God. Am I saved? Let me encourage you. A person, a Christian, is not an individual with no bad desires. A Christian is one who is at war with them. Here's when you need to be concerned. When there is no battle raging within you. When all of a sudden you are not wrestling against the things of the flesh. When you are satisfied with them. 
when you are no longer battling those carnal desires, at that point, I would be worried. But when you are battling and wrestling with the carnal nature and with that old man and the spirit that is in you is in conflict and doing war with that rebellious side of you, that part of your life that is rebellious. That is the life of a believer. Romans, in Romans 7, we see this so explicitly. The bottom line, folks, is we don't always do what we want to do. In his wonderful commentary, um, Dr. Burton says this in regards to this struggle. Does the man choose evil? The spirit will oppose him. Does he choose to do good? The flesh will hinder him. That is the life of the believer. Here's the main point. The main point I think that, we're tr- that Paul is trying to get across to us is not so much that there is a war, but that there is a victor in the war. And that is that if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And I should note this, that this battle that is so evident and so prevalent in our lives is not a war that lasts forever. You see, there will come a day, there will come a day where you and I will receive resurrected bodies and we will live in complete harmony with God's will. I think that's kind of part of the idea of the eternal state is that we are living in complete harmony with God's will. We do, as a Christian, it is our desire, I hope it's your desire, to do the will of your Father. You love to do God's will. You love to follow after Him. You love to do um, and to obey Him and to do what's right. That is the most pleasing thing that we have. And the eternal state is forever doing that which pleases our Heavenly Father. This war does not last forever and we can take comfort in this war does not end in a stalemate. This war is won by the Holy Spirit. And one day, the Holy Spirit will gain total victory over our flesh. He will give us new bodies. We will be given new bodies and we will be eternally doing all that our spirit, that the Holy Spirit desires. And so... I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now here's another term Paul uses of being in the realm of the Spirit. And you should note the passive element. Walking is active. This is something you do. Walking has a goal. Walking has a purpose. Walking makes progress. But being led is passive. That is, it is the Holy Spirit who leads us. It is the Holy Spirit who does this work. He leads and we walk where he leads. There is this spirit-empowered cooperation by which we live in freedom. Spirit leads and we walk. And the Spirit will never lead you to violate God's holy commands. So anytime you think that there is some desire in your life 
that violates God's commands, but you say, you know, but God and I, we've worked something out, and there's an exception for me. No, there is no exception. He will not lead you to violate his own holy commands. The Spirit will not lead you to violate the commands of our Heavenly Father. And so if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the flesh. There will always be conflict. I believe, though, the Holy Spirit will lead us to victory. So you are not under the law. And I think the law here has to do with our own human self-effort. You are not under the law. You are not under human effort to obey or to follow God's commands. It is the Spirit who enables you to do that which He commands. And so we will walk by the Spirit and we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So Paul begins this whole thing with there is this conflict. There is this conflict within the human person. The old man is warring against the new man. The flesh is is warring against the Spirit. But if you walk after the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then Paul makes this rather lengthy list of both vices and virtues. And he says that the deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, the works of the flesh, that part of us, or the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Everybody knows what they are. And Paul now begins to develop further this antithesis between flesh and spirit by distinguishing Two lists of ethical behavior. And before we look at these lists, and I'm not going to go into great detail on every aspect or every element of each of these lists, but I will kind of summarize them. But before we we look more closely at them, I do want to make a couple of observations about these two lists. The first one is he talks about works of the flesh or deeds of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. First of all, works are just that. They are things that you can do. It kind of has an industrial or a mechanical uh, theme to it. These are things that you can do. These are things that you can accomplish. And human history is littered with our works of self-fulfillment. This is what a person can produce. We should not then be caught by surprise that what a person does, what a human can accomplish on his own or in his own strength or in his own ability are completely contrary to the things of God. These are works of the flesh. These are in contrast then to the fruit of the Spirit. We had an apple canning event here on Friday. Was it Friday? Yeah. And a lot of this, this is apple season. A lot of fruits getting grown right now. Here's the thing. How many of you got fruit trees? Yeah, quite a few of you. Is it a good apple season? Pretty good apples? Yeah, we still got a bunch of apples at home. The thing about fruit, in contrast to works, is that regardless of how much effort you put into protecting your fruit... Regardless of how much care you take to guard your fruit trees against frost, against insects, against elk, against javelina, against rabbits and squirrels, and all of those things, regardless of how much effort you put into all of that, 
fruit is still a gift. You still have no control over what fruit you're going to get. You can make all the efforts you want to make, and those are good. You probably need to put up barriers so the elk don't eat them and that the frost doesn't get to them and that the insects don't destroy. You probably need to do all of those things, but in the end, fruit is a gift. This is in contrast to the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are things that you can accomplish on your own, and fruit, after all you've said and done, is still a gift from God. So that's our first observation that we should consider when we are looking at these two lists. We should also note that works are plural. There are a lot of works that you can do that are in, by which you will disqualify yourself from the kingdom of heaven. However, fruit is singular. There is one fruit of the Spirit, just one. I'll spend a little bit more time with that. But there are many works. There is one fruit. And so let's look at these vices that Paul makes. Paul has a number of viceless in his, uh, in his epistles, and this is one of many. And they are evident, and they are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorceries, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so as we look at these this vice list, we see a couple of different groupings, and people have tried to group these in a variety of different ways. And um, I group them just for efficiency and hopefully for some ability to understand them. And the first three, I think, go together. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. These are sexual uh, works of the flesh. And immorality is just old-fashioned fornication. I know we don't use that word very often, but there it is. And it's basically, it is sexual relationships outside of marriage. This is a work of the flesh. We have uncleanness or impurity, and this really has to do with filth of the mind. Based on where it's placed in this list, probably having to do with sexual filth of the mind, pornographic, a pornographic mindset. And the last one being sensuality. Some might even have lasciviousness. And the difference, or kind of the... the distinction here is that which is without restraint. That is sexual explicit sexual expression without restraint. In other words, some people say, well, you know what? You really shouldn't get involved with two people do in the privacy of their own bedrooms. Okay, that's not this. This is when people are out there flaunting these things. These are things you see in some of these parades that are so prominent now. And they are actually, we are just flaunting our rebellion against God. This isn't just what we do in the privacy of our own homes. This is, you will see what I'm doing. I am proud of what I'm doing. I'm going to make it explicit, put it on billboards, and put it in your face. And that's what I'm going to do. And you will accept it. 
this is evident. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The next little minor grouping is idolatry and sorcery. This would be a a religious vice. We shouldn't be surprised that sexual sins and idolatries are grouped together because these two things are just prominent in Scripture. Israel's guilt, idolatry, and sexual sins. When we studied the book of Revelation, what were the two big things going on? What are the seven, read about the seven churches. What are their issues? Idolatry and sexual sins. These things just seem to go together, so we shouldn't be surprised that Paul lists them uh, right next to each other. Idolatry, just simply anything other than worshiping, having any other higher priority other than God. What do you worship? It could be a false understanding of God. You'll, re- you'll recall when we talked about this Wednesday, when Moses went up on the mountain and he was receiving uh, the words from God and Aaron was down below and Moses took a little too long and remember he threw, gathered all the gold and threw it in the fire and out popped a golden calf. He doesn't know how, it just kind of happened. And, uh, Gee, I don't know, I just threw it in there and out popped this golden calf. I, just amazing. But here's the thing. He said, this is Yahweh. He wasn't abandoning Yahweh. He wasn't saying, don't worship Yahweh. He wasn't saying that Yahweh didn't deliver you. He wasn't saying any of that. He's saying, this is Yahweh. You shouldn't be surprised that sexual immorality was going on at the same time. This is Yahweh. That is, making Yahweh somebody he is not. following any faith that does not provide an accurate view of the God who created all things is idolatry. Even if you hold that sincerely, it's idolatry. Along with that comes sorcery. Sorcery here should not be limited, I mean, when you hear the word sorcery, of course what comes to mind is witchcraft and casting spells and you know, incantations and that type of thing. And certainly that would be included. But sorcery here, we should also note, um, comes from a Greek word having to do with drug use. I mean, we get our, our English word pharmacy from this, from this Greek word, and I, I don't want to go too far with that because we can, anyway, they won't go off on proper use of Greek language, but need to be a little bit careful. But here's the thing. Idolatrous practices in Paul's day were often accompanied by mind-altering drugs. And that's how they worshipped. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that sorcery that is, the use of mind-altering drugs for the, for the purpose of getting nearer to God is related to idolatry. So we have sexual vices, we have religious vices, and then we have what I'll call relational vices. 
enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. I won't go into detail on all of these things, but certainly you can see how these will divide a church. When we talk about dissensions, this is literally just down-talking. So do we down-talk one another? I love so-and-so, but, you know, here's what really drives me nuts. And then we say something that does not honor them and does not build them up and makes them seem less in the minds of another. We do that to church leadership. We do that to our brothers and sisters. This is not loving your neighbor as yourself, and it will divide a church, and it will create little cliques and schisms, and there is no room for that in the kingdom of God. Factions. It's just divisions. Paul tells us to rebuke a divisive individual because it will divide a people. It will divide a community. It is probably the oldest tactic in the book, divide and conquer. And so, enmity, strife, jealousy, Anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. The final major list will be intemperance, drunkenness and orgies. It's interesting because these two words are often listed together in the Bible. And drunkenness is pretty basic. I don't think I need to unpack that too much. Orgies, um, probably what you think. But also just any raucous behavior, probably raucous behavior that go, that tends to follow or be accompanied by uh, drinking bouts. Perhaps it had to do with the, the sensual practices of idolatrous worship in Paul's day as well. And so Paul lists all of these things and then he says this, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. In other words, Paul's already talked to him about this that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know how much more clear you can get. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so then my question or my concern is, what Christian is there who can boast perfect victory over these things? Is there anybody in this room who this week has not Somewhere in thought or word or perhaps even indeed been guilty of one of these. I would guess that within this church throughout this week, every one of these things has been broken by the people in this church. Probably. So what do we do with that? Are none of us fit for the kingdom of heaven? This is where we research a little further and we focus on this word practice. Because it has to do with the ongoing, unrepentant adoption of these things. In other words, it is not the person who happens to fall in one of them. It is not the person who happens to do or commit one of these acts. It is the person who does these things, refuses to repent, 
refuses to submit themselves to God and continues in them, perhaps even trying to uh, endorse them or somehow justify them in the sight of God. I think John Calvin is very, uh, writes very well on this. He says, For who is there who does not labor under one of these or other, or other of these sins? I reply, Paul does not threaten that there shall be excluded from the kingdom of God all who have sinned, but all who remain impenitent. The saints themselves are heavily burdened, but they return to the way. Because they do not surrender, they are not included in this catalog. All the threatenings of God's judgments call us to repentance, for which pardon is always ready with God. But if we continue obstinate, they will be a testimony against us. And I think Calvin is right. He is saying, basically, if you persist in these things, in unrepentant persistence, There might be a cause for concern. On the other hand, if you read these things and they call you to repentance, this is why God gives us the list. It's not to condemn you, but to cause us to repentance. We live in a day not of repentance, but we live in a day where um, we see these things and we justify them and we seek to justify them biblically. Oh, God can't really mean that. And certainly, we must have misunderstood the Bible for the past 2,000, 3,000 years, and it can't mean what it's meant for the past 3,000 years. We've totally misunderstood it. Somehow, we need to ju- I need to justify what I am doing, and I will find a way to do so, rather than falling on our knees and seeking God's forgiveness, for which He is abundantly merciful and abundantly ready to, to forgive the penitent sinner. Paul then goes on and he lists a grouping of virtues. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All of these graces belong together. It is one whole spiritual life. You need to understand that there is one fruit of the Spirit. Many, many works of the flesh, one fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps I can change the metaphor a little bit, and that is there is one gem with nine different facets. Maybe that's, I'm not trying to like one up Paul. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit in a way that I never will be. But maybe that'll help us understand things. One gem, nine facets, one fruit of the Spirit, nine characteristics. In other words, we we don't pick and choose. This isn't like spiritual gifts where a person is given a gift just as the Spirit wills. You don't get to say, well, you know, I kind of like the love thing. I'm going to really, really do that one, you know. No, you don't get to pick and choose. I like love and uh, self-control. Forget that. You know, I don't want that one. Um, but, but, but I like joy. Joy's good. I, I'm a joyful person. That's the one I want. I want love and joy. We don't get to pick and choose these. This is one fruit. You get them all. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no, no law. Probably a number of ways these things have been grouped. I'll just group them in nice little triads. Groups of three. Three groups of three. Love, joy, peace. 
This is one of general Christian virtues. And they have... They, they seem to be more focused on our relationship with God or our attitude toward God. For a Christian's first love is his love for God. And his chief joy is his joy in God. And the fact that he's been forgiven and his deepest peace is the fact that he has peace with God. Love, joy, peace. Very Godward centered fruit. And the next is patience, kindness, goodness. These are social virtues. They are manward rather than Godward in their direction. Patience is long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute. I think we can use a fair amount of patience. Long-suffering towards those who aggravate us. Kindness is a question of disposition and goodness of words and deeds. We just need to be, just be kind to one another. It's just not that. I don't know. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the third triad is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These appear to be more self-word. They tend to describe the reliability of the individual. Faithfulness. Can you be counted on? Gentleness, that humble meekness with which Christ exhibited. Which Christ exhibited. These are aspects of, all of these are, self, are aspects of self-control. And self-control concludes the list. We need more self-control in our day and age in which we live. And so we see these three groups of three, and they are Godward, manward, and selfward. And in them we will love God and we will love our neighbor as ourselves. We should note that we do not grow fruit on our own. S.H. Hook writes, a vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. It is it is the fruit of the divine nature that God gives us through Christ. It is the natural produce of his indwelling in us. Fruit takes time to grow. Fruit doesn't appear overnight. It also needs to be cultivated. And so let's talk a little bit of how do we cultivate this divine fruit? What, is, what does it mean for me to walk? If I'm being led, what does it mean for me to walk in the Spirit? How do I actually do that? How do I actually cultivate the fruit that God will bear in my life by His grace? How does that actually happen? I think verse 24 and 25 will give us a good indication Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so there are two sides to this bearing fruit, or we might say two sides to sanctification. And that's just one of these fancy religious terms that means the the living out of God's righteousness in our lives. It is the growing in the grace of Christ. And there are two sides to this sanctification. The first side is putting to death and the second side is coming to life. And so we look at this first one and we will call it mortification of the flesh. I know we don't use that word very often anymore, but it's a good word. Mortification of the flesh. And if you're interested, you should read John Owen's Mortification of the Flesh. It's a massive work, but it is very well worth reading. You can actually download it. There's an audio version also now, so you you don't have to read the whole massive thing. You can listen to it. 
And uh, anyways, this isn't about John Owens. Putting to death the sinful nature, crucifying the sinful nature, denying it, killing it. Folks, we are in mortal combat and there is no truce. And we cannot enter into peace negotiations with our flesh or with our sinful nature. We must crucify it. Crucifying was painful. It hurt. It was uncomfortable. And when you crucify the flesh, it will be uncomfortable. This is one of the reasons why I think our, our time of fasting is so important. I know I've shared this before, I think publicly, but I'm sure I know to some of you individually. But one of the great things that I learn from fasting is that probably one of our greatest passions, one of our greatest desires is the desire to eat. It's probably one of our strongest, ap- no pun intended, appetites. I like to eat. And the hunger pains come and I say, no, I will not give in. I am crucifying that, that desire. I'm putting it to death. I say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on something else. And yes, I'm uncomfortable. But I find I'm usually only uncomfortable for a short period of time and then they kind of go away and I'm all right. I know they're going to come again. Isn't that just like temptation, it comes, and it seems like I just got to give in. But if I say no and wait a little while, it's like, oh, it kind of goes away. I know it's going to come back again. But when I fast, I realize, you know what? I can deny those things. I can say no to those things. I can crucify that. The other thing about crucifixion is that it was final. It really did do what it was supposed to do. What it was supposed to do was supposed to kill the victim. It was final. This was it. If you were crucified, there was no like, well, tomorrow, you know, once I'm kind of done with the whole crucifixion thing, I'm going to kind of go out and look for a new job or something. Crucifixion is final. It's over. You're dead. It may be long and slow and agonizing, but it is final. And we are to crucify this part of us that rebels against God. And then, once we do, don't revive it. No CPR. We crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, that is, so here is the other side of it, coming to life, vivification. As we put to death one part of us, we are at the same time being revived by the Holy Spirit. That is, we are keeping in step with the Spirit. So as this carnal part of us is being put to death, this spiritual side of us is coming to life. I should note that this takes discipline. And it comes from daily obedience. So how do I keep in step with the Spirit? How do I live in the Spirit? As I said, it takes discipline. It will come from daily obedience. It does not come from some special blast of the Holy Spirit or some special experience in the Holy Spirit. I hate to tell you this, it comes from daily obedience. James Packer, I think, explains this well. And so I will quote him at length. 
because he's James Packer. The Spirit works through means, he says, through the objective means of grace, namely biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the Lord's Supper, and with them through the subjective means of grace whereby we open ourselves to change, namely thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others, and weighing any response they make. The Spirit shows His power in us, not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies. Such communications come only rarely, and to some believers, not at all, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. Habit-forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us in holiness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of them are habitual ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And so how do we develop this fruit? Well, there are means of grace, and those means of grace are listening to biblical truth. They are through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is one of the reasons why we gather together for corporate public worship. People say, well, why should I go to church? Well, one of the reasons is, is that we will worship and we will pray together and we will sing together and we will hear God's word together. Why do I need to go to a Bible study? Gee, I, I don't know about all of that. It's like I, got a, I, got, I went to church once. I'm good. The reason we do is because one of the means of grace by which fruit is born is by hearing God's word. By worshiping and singing songs together. Then Packer goes on and talks about these subjective means of grace where we open ourselves to change. Thinking, listening, questioning ourselves, examining ourselves, admonishing ourselves, sharing with it what's in one heart and weighing a response that is made. I think that's one of the directions that the Callahan small group is going to really kind of focus on. I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I am going to plug it. This idea to share with one another and commune with one another and this is what's on my heart and this is where I'm at. And we can encourage one another and maybe build some trust so that we can even admonish one another and confess with one another and say, man, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm going. And during all of that, we'll we'll listen to what God says in His Word and perhaps sing a hymn and pray together and share with one another our concerns and express our commitment to strengthen one another and bear one another's burdens. This is how you grow. This is how you bear fruit. It's not going to happen overnight. You can't come to church and you're going to walk out of here a strong Christian. You can't open the Bible tomorrow and read one passage of Scripture and then be a mature Christian. But keep reading. Keep praying. Keep fellowshipping. Keep singing hymns. Keep fasting. Keep celebrating the Lord's Supper. Keep recognizing the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And one day, a temptation, you'll you'll go, that temptation hasn't hit me for like six months. I don't know what happened. I'll tell you what happened. You were bearing fruit. And when the temptation came, you much... You, you dismissed it with much greater ease than you ever did before. And you're going, I don't know how that happened. I do. I know exactly how it happened. You kept praying and you kept reading God's word and you kept investing in God's people and you kept ministering and using the gifts that God has given you and you kept fellowshipping and admonishing one another and questioning, you know, examining, you kept examining yourself and doing all of these things 
These were the means of grace by which you began to bear fruit and your spirit, that spirit side of you became strong and the flesh was crucified. That's how it happened. So I'll conclude then with this. We are called to live out the command to love one another as ourselves. And that is challenged by a daily spiritual battle because it is hard to love my neighbor as myself because I would much rather love myself. We should recognize and be encouraged that when we experience conflict, that is not unchristian, but complacency is. When there is no battle raging, perhaps it's a time of peace. But when you're in conflict, it just tells you that you're wrestling. The Spirit is working in you. We are told to keep in step with the Spirit, and to do so means that we employ the means that bears fruit. And the more we keep in step with the Spirit, that is, the more we uh, engage ourselves in God's Word, is the more we engage ourselves in ordinances such as the Lord's Supper, and the more we engage ourselves in prayer and self-examination and repentance, and assurance of forgiveness, the more we engage in those things, the more fruitful we become. And Jesus tells us that we are to bear good fruit. And he is the vine, we are the branches, we are attached to him, and he has given us his spirit. And if we walk in the spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Let's stand and let's pray. Gracious Lord, you are merciful and just. And uh, we confess that there are probably some things in, in this text today, Lord God, that we have not done or that we have done. So have mercy upon us. Lord, our heart is that you would develop fruit in us that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, that that fruit would be evident, not the works of the flesh. What would be evident is how we love you and how we love our neighbor as ourselves, how we seek out the highest good of others. So give us strength this day, Lord God. I pray, Father God, that we would be quick to repent and turn from our ways, Lord God. And that we would realize that you are quick to forgive the penitent heart. That there is truly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so, Lord, help us to crucify this flesh that we might live in the Spirit. And thereby prove or live a life, Lord God, that is fulfilling, but truly we will find our fulfillment when we live our lives for you. So have mercy on us. In Christ's name, amen.